You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to l3harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited to be here today with my good friend, Joe Delamura. Man, we go way back on the National IMAT. We were, we were serving there together. We've been to, to a ton of disasters, and he has just so much experience. He's going to be talking a little bit about that today. But we're really going to be focusing on the big news of late is the COVID-19 vaccinations. He During the summer, he was a big part of that distribution, testing, and trying to get it out. So he's like he's been totally involved in the whole process so he can catch us up of what's been happening. No more outlier discussions. We can go right to the guy. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, John, I really appreciate you uh, bringing me in here. Uh, sounds like a real fun show you got going. Uh, you know, it's almost like watching uh, some kind of uh, get up or uh, uh, the, the, the uh, Dan uh, Patrick show. It's pretty impressive to see uh, see this whole thing come together. So I'm, I'm super excited to to join in and, and talk to y'all about uh, probably the longest uh, spring and summer of, of my life uh, working on the uh, coronavirus uh, task force. And, uh, you know, really, uh, I had more hair before it started. Um, but, you know, now, uh, now I've got, uh, now I got to probably go and get a, get some of those plugs put in after that hole. That's awesome. Over the summer, but we got it going. Hey, I think the loss of hair is a uh, great indication of hard work. So uh, clearly I don't work very hard. Cause I got a full head, but uh, <laughs> you're in. So, Hey, uh, let's just walk through, uh, you're talking about the longest uh, spring and summer of your life, right? So kind of walk us through this. Like, how did you get involved? What was your, what's your process? I understand you were like log chief, logistics chief from FEMA to the white house there. So what does that really entail? And how did you get put on that task force? Who are those major players? Just kind of like give us that big picture. Yeah, for sure. So um, this all happened, oddly enough, on Friday the 13th. So uh, the 13th of March, 
um, was uh, D-Day for me, and that was uh, approximately one week before the national disaster was declared um, by the president, um, basically, uh, in initiating all of the shutdowns. Uh, I was actually up in Massachusetts um, working on a cyber security exercise uh, with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts um, from Connecticut. I was looking forward to spending a weekend at home with my uh, with my folks. And uh, as I was uh, transiting back from uh, the Boston area back to uh, uh, um, New Haven area where I'm from in Connecticut, I got a phone call from my division director and basically said, hey, uh, Joe, we, uh, we need you to uh, come in and uh, work on uh, this project um, regarding distribution and, and, and uh, you know, some type of, uh, you know, large scale logistics operations, which is what I do under normal conditions or normal conditions of, you know, <laughs> emergency management are all relative. Yeah. And uh, I said, no problem. You know, are, are we able, you know, I got some stuff going on next week. Can I come in a week afterwards? He goes, no, we need you here now. And um, I was on a plane about uh, three hours later to D.C. I reported into Health and Human Services the next day into uh, Admiral Brett Gerard's office. Um, he's the guy wearing the uh, naval uniform you'll see on a lot of the uh, a lot of the press conferences. And I walked in and it was just chaos. It was yes. just uh I couldn't fathom what was going on. There was people there. Um, everyone was real uh, high strung. A lot of guys in suits, emergency managers, you never really see wear suits. So um, <laughs> we see a lot of guys and I just couldn't uh, for the life of me there. Uh, the first memory I have was an individual uh, didn't look much older than me wearing a suit. This was uh, on a Saturday morning at this point, yelling into a phone saying by order of the president, I need this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, who was that guy? I had no idea. I'm not really a big politico. Mm. And uh, one of the other guys told me uh, later on that that was actually uh, Peter Navarro, who is uh, the president's trade advisor. So, I mean, apparently he had, he was talking to the CEO of one of the medical companies, basically trying to get supplies, um, you know, uh, get a favor of supplies as opposed to get them out of the private sector. So from there, it was 18 hour days for probably the next six months. Oh my gosh! So it's it's totally different because like when I think of, uh, like a hurricane, like okay, like I know what I'm uh, I'm about to like walk into. Like okay, there's gonna be a wind event, there's gonna be a rain event, there's gonna be evacuations, that kind of stuff. Wildfire, the same thing. Even like no notice, like we we prep for that no notice. But it sounds like you walked into this atmosphere and it was just like you just got sandblasted. Um, so way on you for like sticking with that. <laughs> That's nuts. Um, so you're talking about like all, all these like major players in both politics and in emergency services coming together and um, having to um, like deal with that moment in our, in our country's history. Do you think you understood like in the beginning of this, that it would be um like this would be like the great pandemic of 2020 or like this would be like one of those like history moments for emergency management or like, when did you think like this was like going to be like a big thing? You know, it's, it's all, you know, and you, you know, it better than anyone else in emergency management, we get into that habit of things are just kind of routine, the routine for us. They may not be routine for a carpenter or a, you know, a bus driver or a truck driver, but they're routine for, for us that we, we deal in chaos and shortages and emergency management. So we're used to that. So um, when I first got kicked off on it, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a couple weeks. You know, I don't know if y'all remember the uh, flatten the curve, right? That's mm-hmm. what we were being told. And 
I think uh, the word out of the White House was we'll be open again by April. Well, you know, this, this is the <laughs> longest two weeks. We're still closed now in January. So longest um, two weeks of your life, you know, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, I didn't get a real big impression that this was going to be a big deal um, up until honestly, when things started closing near my house, mm. you know, so a lot of the time in emergency management, you're not really up against, you don't see the disaster happening. You know, you're going to a, a Gulf area, a Gulf Coast hurricane, you're in Baton Rouge and the flooding is in New Orleans, you're in Austin and the flooding is in Houston. So you're mm-hmm. far enough away and removed that it's not hitting home. But when the bars that I start going to and the gyms I start going to in that order and the restaurants I start going to are closing down all around me and everyone's wearing a mask when you go inside the grocery store mm-hmm. um, and the metro closes, that's when I started to realize that this was something that wasn't going away. Um, yeah. you know, just the industry response is really what indicated to me that this was going to be something and we've all taken bets internally. How long is this going to go on? How long are we going to be wearing these things on our faces? And, yeah. uh, the projections go out from month to years. Yeah. My, that's funny, man. I want to give my projection, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. So the, um, man, what you're saying that when like hitting home, I was actually thinking of my brother-in-law, Paul is a call out to him. Uh, he was he was in Manhattan during uh, Hurricane Sandy, and half of Manhattan was completely without power, and the other half was totally fine. So he'd go into work, and people didn't really understand. I mean, they were still that close, but they didn't really understand the impact because they had power, they had running water, they had a whole deal. And his apartment was black. You know, his apartment was no power, no running water. You know, like he felt like he was, you know, out on the lamb for a while. And he'd go into work and people just like couldn't even comprehend it. And he told me that several years ago and that really stuck with me about like really getting out there and working with survivors. And so like I've made several pitches on here with my own experiences even of getting out there and working with survivors. So it's like it's like a good call out there. Um, do you think that man, I really want to get political, but I'm not I'm not a political guy. Um the complexities of a large scale disaster and uh, a disaster that that's global, nationwide at the least, but global. Um, how much do you think that plays into the the pandemic, or played into the pandemic? That like people didn't really understand how serious it was until it hit home for them, until it was like close to them. Do you think that's still rolling out, or do you think like the general public or even leaders have really figured it out? Like this is something that's not going away until they do something about it. Yeah, so that's a really good point and, and a good segue into a, a topic that, that it is political. And we know that all disasters are political. You know, we always say all disasters are local and all politics are local. Thus, all politics are disasters. Mm-hmm. It's very much the case here. So a lot of the time, you know, during a disaster, we, we run into the fact that, hey, hurricane just hit Florida. You know, it's the federal government. It's other states going to help Florida. Well, our standard system is not built to handle 56 states and territories all requiring the same resources, the same personnel, the same attention, all at the same time. So when we are interfacing with our chief elected officials from the governors, senators, congressmen, and and they were calling, and they got my number, which was real real fun to get those calls direct. And hey, this is Larry Hogan. Who from Larry Hogan's office? No, this is Larry Hogan. Oh, wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a sandwich at Subway, and I got the governor on the phone yelling at me. So when you deal with that so many times, these elected officials are so used to um, being the only show in town. 
So when they ask for something, they always get it. You know, when they submit a resource request form, which is the mechanism to request support from, from FEMA to the state or any other federal organization to a state, you know, they're used to getting what they want and on time or early, right? Yeah. They're, they're used to being able to put the astronomical requests in knowing that, hey, if, you know, if it's not in Florida, it's in Texas, it's in Oregon, it's in, in Idaho, we can get it from somewhere else. But when we've seen this national shortage and we've seen, you know, basically alternative care centers getting set up in convention centers, when we've seen, you know, people having to, you know, turn underwears into masks, which is exactly what happened. We, we ran through a contract with Haynes, the underwear company, to make masks. Um, when we've seen this absolutely, you know, in, industrial shortage, that's when it started hitting home. Mm. And, you know, you could just see it walking around. I mean, we had people, you know, we were one of the few groups that were still going into the office for a while. We switched to a remote platform after a little while. But for the first month or so, when everyone was at home, we were the only people going in. And you've seen the, just the sheer lack of knowledge about the hazard. You've seen people going into work in full Mike 40. I'm talking military grade gas masks, not because they couldn't get anything else, because they literally did not know what level of protection was needed. And when you're living in a society that looks post-apocalyptic when that's happening, that's when it starts hitting home. And I think that's when people started realizing that, one, this isn't going away, and two, I can be impacted by this. Yeah. And, and I think that was the biggest, most significant part was once people started taking it seriously, uh, th we did turn a corner on it. I like to say that if people underreact, politicians will use that as an opportunity to overreact. And... um like and my other thing is like messaging means everything and like this year or this last year finally we're out of 2020 2020 sucked uh except for that i had a daughter which is pretty awesome um but like congratulations yeah thanks like in terms of like emergency services and like that that stress on the system messaging was totally screwed up and um you know like having to deal with with like people both underreacting and overreacting um, like it, it just, it, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating thing. That's why you still have economies shut down. That's why you still can't have schools open. It's because you have like these big sways and, in opinion based analysis, which isn't really based off the data. Um, so like, that's a, that's an excellent call out. Uh, you're talking about post apocalyptic uh, like views, man, I can't even like imagine, um, like what, if somebody tried to explain to me like what 2020 would have been like in 2019, I, I would have laughed at them. Like I'm not a doomsday prepper, you know? And so it's like, like, what are you talking about? But like looking back, like we had more named hurricanes in, uh, in U.S. history in a single year. We had like record breaking wildfires. We had this pandemic where we had tried to shelter everybody in like different areas, which I should actually talk to you about because you're probably pro of that too. Um, but to your credit, you and your uh, task force were credited for like by June, like a million uh, tests or something like that, right? Like you guys did like some big astronomical number that you, right? I saw that that you right. talked about that. Forty-four million. Oh, jeez, I said a million. Forty-four million. Yeah, no big deal. Uh, wait, hold up. I got this thing. Wait for it. Wait for it. Ah, <laughs> oh, there we go. It's cheering. So, um, oh, there we go. Yeah, the cheers. Um, so good job there. Forty-four million. Um, okay, logistically speaking, 
what were your outliers? What were the gaps? If we're talking to like general emergency managers, especially like those loggy guys who are trying to do like after actions or planning for the future, whether it's whether it's for their, their only ca- for their county or for uh, a federal level, what were the lessons learned for you for for uh, logistics and doing with this? Well, I can just tell you, um, it's some of the biggest things that we we learned about this. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot less of it was really logistics. We know how to do distribution. I mean, we've been distrib- we've been distributing stuff for a long time in FEMA. We know how to do that. Two challenges that we faced: one, the in, you know industry, right? So we are reliant. Government is reliant on private enterprise. We are when it comes to supplies. We're, we don't want. We'll take a standard disaster response. You know, a hurricane, for example. We don't make the food and the water that we're giving to the states, to the shelters. We don't make, we don't refine the diesel fuel and the gasoline that we distribute. You know, we don't create the generators. We don't have a generator factory, right? So we are reliant on industry to provide us those supplies from areas that aren't impacted by the disaster. And then we just distribute it to an area, simple hub and spoke that is impacted. In this instance, we did not have a supply chain. So that is when we had to get clever. That is where the White House folks were extremely helpful because they have these relationships. When you have Jared Kushner calling CEOs, and he did, and you have Donald Trump calling CEOs, and he did, and he actually went to some of the ribbon-cutting ceremonies for some of the places that we uh, did Defense Production Act and and increased their factories, um, that is when you have real horsepower behind this. So, for example, uh, we expanded the in vitro diagnostics testing industry. So that is the industry where you're getting – you know, nasal samples taken or oral samples taken and put into a transport media and tested. We expanded supply for that industry 60-fold. So just an example, in March of 2020, uh, 231,000 coronavirus test kits were distributed. By May, 14 million were distributed that month. So we expanded it so dramatically. And the way that we did it was because we had the horsepower from the White House and we had people that were smart that were thinking of these things. And we had some great private sector uh, uh, um, uh, experts, SMEs that told us, yeah, you can use this or no, I wouldn't use that if I were you. Um, And that's what helps. So a big example, you know, disasters, they say, brings out the worst in, in us and it brings out the best in us. And we had some people that really stepped up to the plate uh, to help. So we had 18 different vendors that created testing materials for us. But of those, very few were actually medical companies. We had a lot of companies that reached out to us early on that wanted to donate other stuff. So good example being there's a company in Massachusetts that reached out. And this company makes lunches for schools and uh, other congregate uh, like nursing home type facilities. They reached out and said, hey, we want to donate some food. We had a testing site somewhere in Massachusetts. They wanted to donate food for the workers. And we looked up the company. We're like, oh, wow, this company is actually pretty big. So we go, you can keep your food, but can you make this? And we gave them a recipe for transport media, viral transport media. So the actual uh, liquid that you put the sample in after you collect it. And they go, well, we have all the instrumentation and we have, you know, yeah, I don't see why not. So they started making that. Wow. We had another company That's cool. out in California. I mean, it, but it's it's like the it, the challenge really is it, because it was a testing, a diagnostic thing, we were able to get away with it because it doesn't go in your body, right? So the, the regulations are stricter on something like a vaccine, obviously. That's why yeah. that was such a miracle. Um, we had another company out in California that normally makes soy sauce. 
and they reached out to us about some other uh, matter. They were trying to donate. I think they were trying to donate vials or something. We go, well, you guys have the instrumentation. Can you make this media? And they did. Um, and then we had another company that was actually a large medical company that, that could make that had the stuff ready. The problem was the supply chain on the vials was down. They didn't have enough plastic to make vials. So we reached out to Coca-Cola and we said, can you guys make these vials? And they produced the vials and sent them to that company and filled them up with the stuff. So at the end of the day, it was ingenuity and it was just industry rogering up and saying, Hey, we're all Americans. We don't care about profit right now. We, we care about fixing this. Mm. You know, they wanted Americans not to have coronavirus more than they wanted to help their bottom line. And, and that's what solved this. But that was only one phase of it. The second phase after we got the product was getting people to use it. So hundred years ago, when I used to work for a living, I was in emergency medical services. So I was uh, an ambulance driver extraordinaire. So I dealt with uh, medical folks all the time. And um, I learned that they're very much creatures of habit. So if you have a doctor that knows that a 20-gauge catheter comes in a pink wrapper and he uses it for 10 years, and then all of a sudden you hand him a 20-gauge catheter in a yellow wrapper, that doctor will tell you, I can't use that. That's not right. They're creatures of habit. They're used to the same thing every day, every day. So when you have these doctors that start getting transport media in soy sauce containers, they start telling you, I can't use this. What is this? I only use this brand forever. It's the only brand I'll ever use. Our machinery won't work with it. That was their number one excuse. And, you know, I don't know about machinery. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a logistician. I put warheads on foreheads. You know, that, that's what I do. I'm not in charge of, you know, uh, testing. I'm not a medical guy at all. My job is to buy things, right, and distribute things. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when they started telling me, I don't know. So what we did was we found some people local to Washington, D.C., uh, that, that, you know, just through networking that were in the industry. We had a clinical uh, laboratory scientist say, hey, I want to help you guys. And uh, she was able to talk to these medical folks and say, yeah, look, I know it comes in a soy sauce container, but it's actually the same product as this. And you can run it on this machine. And you can validate it on your machine with these reagents, all kinds of, you know, real like highbrow stuff that, you know, Loggy Joe is not going to be able to figure out. And that's how we built confidence and rapport with the, the people in the laboratories. And that's how we got it to work. Because yeah. when you start making stuff and you hear that, hey, this stuff don't work, people don't want to buy it. People don't trust your product. So it was, it was a lesson for me. It was definitely a lesson for me. And man, I hope we figured it out this time because. I don't think I can do that in two lifetimes. <laughs> well, I, man, there's so much to unravel with what you just said there. I'm not going to lie, man. I was feeling like a pretty big hotshot uh, in 2017 when um, basically I tricked the system legally uh, to be able to get a drone. Hey, you know, th th we were stretched thin. We had Hurricane Maria, Hurricane uh, Irene, and Hurricane uh, Harvey all at the same time. And Brock Long, FEMA administrator sends out a thing saying, you know, be innovative for resources. Uh, our team lead at the time said, uh, you know, he forwarded that to the team and said, be innovative. So I took that. I went to legal and said, we've never been able to get a drone before. I want a drone. And it'll really help out with situational awareness and damage collections. And uh, it's SOP now. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm like carrying around myself like, ooh, I got a drone. You're like, yeah, 44 million tests. We can Coca Cola got involved. All these industry experts, dude. That's that's big time. That's hot shot time. So, uh, hey, just like before we even move on to the next topic, just like thank you so much for um, 
like doing that. Like, like we we have been uh, and sharing that story because like so many people have been impacted by in a positive way to get that answer. You have COVID. You don't have COVID. What are the next steps? How how to like change that within the industry um, and and with the uh, public health? So like obviously you've been a huge impact there. Um, man, I just think like man, like how crazy that is to to call call up like a a soy like a so- soy sauce company or like a like a children's food company and just like hey, can you make this uh this this different recipe, which is so funny. Um. So, like, in terms of like the logistics of it, um, you're talking about how all the innovation that went into to get it all involved, and now we're at the point of, um, like, distribution of the vaccine. And I know your role has changed a little bit, um, but for a lot of us who are watching this, who are on the outside of it now, you know, there was this goal to get 20 million vac- vaccinations by the end of 2020. It was like 2.4 million. And we both know in emergency management, a lot of the listeners understand like you have a goal, but reality hits, right? And so what is like the distribution method that you think is going to be rolling out for the general public? Like we hear a lot about healthcare. We we hear about these industries, but what about the general public? What is going to be the mechanism to get people vaccinated and move on? And how long do you think that's going to take? Man, those are like really like poignant questions, but... Uh, if you're willing to like throw in your, your, your thought process here, I think a lot of people would appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, I mean, we're all still looking for the fountain of youth, right? So I guess <laughs> everyone can opine on that. Um, you know, I, honestly, so, um, the operation warp speed, I'm not intricately involved. I ha- I was consulted at the beginning on a couple of things because, um, the testing mission was similar to this in the, in the sense that it was cold chain, the stuff that we were distributing didn't have to be refrigerated, frozen, chilled. Uh, various uh, items. So they did uh, liaison with me on a couple uh, techniques and uh, I shared some contacts with them, specifically UPS, those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you just what I know. Um, and I can also tell you just some doctrine stuff that how things generally work, which you probably are aware of just as I am. That's the sense that, you know, the federal government is distributing the vaccine. Operation Warp Speed uh, is distributing the vaccine. They're doing a good job. They really are. I mean, you got to think about this. You know, we were talking about 330 million uh, Americans, documented Americans that are, are going to, you know, eventually need this same product and it's a controlled product and there's all kinds of nuances, you know, just like it would be difficult to send a letter to 330 million Americans, let alone something that, that has a medical um, connotation to it that re- requires certain in, uh, contraindications and administration special handling. So um, I applaud their efforts. I will say that a couple things about it. One, um, the federal government will take it to the states. So the federal government will bring it to, and every state has their own distribution plan, similar to the testing supplies. So um, it could be one ship point in the state. For example, I'll use Louisiana. We shipped everything to uh, Louisiana's warehouse in Baton Rouge, the Department of Agriculture warehouse, and then they further distributed the testing supplies outward. So that could be the way they're doing the vaccine, depending on who has cold chain and who doesn't, because not everywhere is equipped to have freezers that they you know, chill things at negative 80 degrees. So they may not be able to use their traditional infrastructure. Um, once the states get it, so we'll send it to however many points in the state the state wants, right? So they'll send it to one point or they'll send it to 80 points, you know? Mm. This is all open source stuff. Um, so, and then from there, it's on the state on how they're going to distribute it. So every state has their own little plan. So for example, 
Um, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is doing healthcare workers and first responders, right? And it goes to the healthcare workers, they'll go to the hospital and they'll say, hey, um, you know, here you guys are going to get, you know, a Children's National Hospital is going to get 4,000 vaccines. I know you have more employees than that. How are you going to pick your employees? And then they have their own internal uh, processes for uh, how they're going to do that. But to your question, the general public, it's just going to have to come down to the states and how they elect to uh, vaccinate their states. So, for example, right now as a FEMA employee, I've been at, I've been offered the vaccine through FEMA. Now, um, I haven't gotten it yet. I clicked yes, I want it, but I haven't uh, actually had an opportunity to uh, go and get it yet. They're put they put us in. Uh, actually, the Veterans Administration is uh, uh, administering it to DHS employees. So, um, you know, we go in that queue. Um, but I know other FEMA employees that um, live in other states and they're classified as first responders and they're getting it through that mechanism. Uh, As far as the general public's concerned, uh, it's going to be up to the state. I think some states are going to uh, open it up to the general public quicker because they're realizing that they're getting declinations from people. They're finding that possibly some healthcare workers already have antibodies, so maybe they're not going to need it. So, um, you know, it's going to come down to the states. But I guess if we were to put a mark on the wall to the point where we think, Hey, enough people have it. You know what I mean? Right now, um, you know, I have like one person in my group of friends that has received it. Right. So you're talking about one out of, you know, 18 people say has gotten it so far. Right. Um, To the point where we're more of them have gotten it than haven't. Um, We're probably looking at April where you can say you're probably everyone's going to know probably half the people that got it. And then you're probably looking at July uh, or August till till it'd be uncommon to not have it. Um, and then the next question comes, is this going to be like another flu shot? Are we getting this every single year? You get an influenza vaccine and you get a, a COVID vaccine. Is, is that going to be the way that it rolls uh, moving forward? That's another question that's yet to be answered. The, the vaccination uh, cocktail. That's what I've been calling it when I've been thinking about that. But um, yeah, like you, you, I was hoping you'd say that. I was hoping you'd say... Uh, like it comes down to the states. I'm a big fan. After going out to so many large-scale disasters and being at the tactical level, I'm a really, really big fan on 99% of the time, local serves local best. Local understands local needs best. Um, but I think there is... I, I think in something like this, there it, it is a gray area, right? Like... Um, Obviously, again, big big fan of state rights, uh, locals best. Like that's that's me through and through. And at the same time, when you have a global issue or or uh, an issue that's affecting all fifty states and its territories, then I'm wondering of like, okay, is there a model that we can create that or that should have been created or that could be created as an after action from this of like. Hey, this is our recommendation. I'm sure you've already provided some recommendations, but every state, hey, this is what we know works best in a, a mass um, mass vaccination process. Because we did that with polio, right? Polio, they they had everybody go to schools and they did it with flu. Um, you know, they they go to Walgreens or they go to CVS. That's how they do it. And so, like, there's there's some different thought processes here. Um, does FEMA or does that task force HHS, I'm assuming is super involved. Do they send out recommendations for the States? And, um, you know, if they are, what are those recommendations? Are, are they just healthcare workers, first responders, children, and then general, 
I mean, what is it? Yeah. So yeah, basically well, you're, you're, you've nailed it in the sense that they do have recommendations, but they are just that. Um, so CDC has kind of sent out a uh, recommended or proposed like uh, phase deployment of the vaccine. And just again, recommendations, the state can choose to go with it. They can choose a modified version of it, or they can disregard it and do their own thing, which is exactly what we've seen with testing. Uh, it's really, the, the two things are very, very similar, different widgets, but uh, you know, we had some states that you had to have symptoms, you had to be a uh, healthcare worker, and you had to be a resident of the state. Comes in when there's small states and people crossing the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had some states that it's just come one, come all. We're just going to test everyone until we're out. Um, it, you're going to see that um, the CDC has recommended, you know, your first line, you know, healthcare workers and first responders and your uh, nursing home populations and workers are first and then essential workers and then general pop. Uh, and some states have a provision for people that are over the age of 65 or have pre-existing health conditions mm-hmm. uh, such as diabetes or things that may make them more at risk. But there is that kind of guidance. But like I said, the states can pick basically whoever, um, you know, however they want to do. And then you have the situations where it comes down to local administration side. Uh, local news ran a story uh, a couple days ago about how there was just a uh, person that was at one of the local uh, pharmacies just doing some shopping and, and uh, somebody approached him from the, uh, the one of the pharmacists says, Hey, do you want the COVID vaccine? And Jeez. apparently what had happened was there was uh, somebody who was scheduled to get it and they canceled and they said, Hey, um, this is going to go bad. We don't have a freezer here. Mm-hmm. If I don't administer this in the next two hours, I'm going to throw it away. It's better to give it to somebody than not. So, uh, and that's actually a model that they're using. I believe in either England or Australia, I think is using uh, the model that, Hey, it's like first come first serve, which, that's not a bad idea, but you're also going to run into problems. You're going to have the bread lines again that we've seen with uh, with testing, where people are lined up uh, behind me is National Stadium, which is a uh, was a is still a COVID testing site, and I'll see it like days before uh, Thanksgiving or before Christmas when people are anticipating needing a test to go somewhere. That line will be out the door and around the corner uh, to the point where it's wrapping around the city block. It's a super so spreader. Start, you, I think the. Yeah, exactly. It's it, well, the optics of it are not good, um, and the fact that you know at, at some point someone's going to get closer than six feet, uh, it's never a good idea to get a whole bunch of people that might be sick in one spot. So, um, I, I guess to come back to your question, I, I, I don't know, um, you know, when that's going to be that we we are getting to the point where uh, everyone has universal uh, uh, kind of uh, guidelines. I do think that within the next probably six to eight months, with manufacturers producing more and with um, other manufacturers coming online um, that were part of the, uh, the Operation Warp Speed, I think more and more vaccine will become available and, add, and more people will be able to get it because the supply will increase. Um, I have two thoughts, three thoughts. One is um, I appreciate your optimism for July of having more people that have had taken it than, and that didn't. Um, I, I, I think it's still going to happen for a while. I really do. I think people are going to be like, they've heard these these stupid ideas about like, oh, 50% would be herd immunity, or maybe it's 85%, or maybe it's 90% is herd immunity. And they're like, well, that's the other 90%. I'm in the 10. I'm good. Or I'm in the other 50%. I'm good. And then you're still going to keep having problems, and they're going to be like, okay, I'll finally go get tested, or I'll finally go get the vaccine. So that's going to happen um, it just because of poor messaging. But, uh, like in terms of like distribution, 
Um, I've been thinking a lot about should a pandemic be considered a national security risk? Um, meaning, it, is it so much about, again, big fan of state rights and I big fan of constitution, that kind of thing. But in terms of national security, when you're talking about your economy, when you're talking about shutting down infrastructure or what happens if everybody in a certain industry gets impacted, um, you know, what, how does that change? And if you are talking about a national security issue, this is more hypothetical. I'm actually not going to ask you on it because um, I understand your role. But um, like the person, the pharmacist who th- threw out 500 uh, you know, vials of the vaccine. I also heard on NPR that third thought of like um, the extra, extra, extra vials or extra, um, extra whatever you, uh, pools you can get from the vial. Um, at NPR, they were talking about in California, the uh, lieutenant governor, I think it was, she was on the, on the thing. She goes, yeah, so like healthcare workers are getting it. And if they can get a couple extra doses out of those vials, they're giving it to their family members. And we know you're just doing the right thing. So that's cool. And I'm like, maybe you shouldn't be saying that on the radio um, of like, yeah, I'm just going to get like, if, if you're in the know, that's what she's saying. If you're in the know, you're going to get it. We're not going to prosecute. We're not going to go after you because we want everybody to get it. Um, but that, that comes back, that comes down to my, my, I guess my, now my fourth, my fourth point is it should be based off of family because I think it's kind of dumb to have the first responder mom, you know, healthcare worker, dad, whatever, go out and get it. And then the rest of the family doesn't get it. And it's like, so what are you really doing here? And so if, if we had a, a little bit better system where it was based off of like last name, um, so, to, so it's not like a feeding frenzy. If I heard that that nice pharmacist is just going to happen to give it to me if somebody else doesn't show up, then I might want to be there every day if I was a fanatic, right? If I was like, I have to get this vaccine. And you can create a, an issue with that, right? So... Man, those are like really, really complex things to think about, um, like in terms of emergency planning and the complexities of disasters. It shows how unique COVID is and how complex, like not just from a logistical side of like getting the supply, but like distribution of that and like everything, why you've had to work 18 hours a day doing this. And um, from here, the, your hairline still looks okay, but I'm sure you've had those spots. Oh, look at that. I'll pull back a little bit. Um, but Joe, again, Photoshop, yeah. <laughs> like it's just questions to think about here in the end of, um, like, what does that mean for me as an emergency manager, as a local, or if if I'm on the state level, or if I, if I am in a task force and I'm in the state of California, and I and I just hear Joe Delamara on here saying it's our job in the federal government to get it to you. It's your job to do it right. That's basically what you're saying, and. Um, like there needs to be after actions of different states of how they did this, what the the good, the bad, the ugly, and so if we have to deal with something else in the future, we don't have to come up with so many novel ideas to get it done, but we kind of have that infrastructure in place to get it done. But uh, knock on wood, I don't know if you can hear that. Um, hopefully, we we never have to deal with this again, at least in our lifetimes. And uh, there's a lot of lessons learned here, so. Uh, Joe, uh, closing comments uh, from from a guy who we got to get you back on the show to talk about logistics in like the normal disaster kind of stuff and what that means for sheltering. 
But like for now, like closing comments, if as a guy with so much experience as a, as a true expert in logistics and now with pandemics, what would your uh, advice be to emergency managers in the field, especially those who are coming up who need to learn from this experience? What would your, your, your after actions be? Well, uh, John, I, and I know you'll appreciate this as a, as a master emergency planner yourself, uh, especially in your, uh, you know, previous role in the federal government and then now uh, in the private sector, that, you know, planning really is such a big part of this. And it's not planning in the sense of organization and, and, and you know, just-in-time planning. It is pre-planning. You know, in emergency management, you know, we're, we plan for the day that we all hope doesn't come, right? Mm. So we, we, you know, we ask for funding. We ask for personnel. We ask for equipment to fight something that we all hope doesn't happen for a tool we all hope we don't have to use and it was evident when we started dusting off the pandemic plans in early march nobody's looked at this for years we were using old h1n1 plans Mm -hmm. to say hey this is what we did before and and it's not a fema thing it's not a government thing it's it's an everybody thing right because i mean now when you go into your local restaurant you have to sit outside you go into your local grocery store and you have to wear a mask you don't say oh darn fema or you know, darn CDC, darn Trump. Or maybe you say darn Trump. I don't know. But, um, you know, <laughs> after you, yesterday, you man, I don't even darn, want to talk about that, but yeah. <laughs> you say darn coronavirus, darn society, darn, you know, city of San Francisco, you know, city of Seattle. You say, you know, you're looking at the locals and it's, it's their responsibility as much as it is the federal, as much as it is the state, because we're all impacted by it. So, you know, plan, plan early. Business continuity is big. You know, I, you know, if you have the build, the businesses that are still up and going, with the exception of your major companies, are businesses that were smart enough to plan for this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you talk about continuity of government or continuity of operations, you know, a lot of federal agencies are going remote, right? So a friend of mine works at the Pentagon, um, and, and, you know, they're struggling big time to go remote because they were not, as an enterprise, ready to put all their employees on their server remotely. So what I can tell an emergency manager or anyone that's involved in emergency services or planning is you've got to be ready for this. You have to kind of be ready for the day the lights go off. And, uh, you know, and you also have to look at your, your suppliers. So you mentioned uh, earlier kind of that cascading effect um, where, you know, if we talk about things like shelters or things like uh, distribution of, of regular supplies, a lot of the time, We'll, we'll go back to the Gulf Coast again. You may have the state of Florida that has an agreement with one vendor for one supply. And you also may have the state of Alabama and Mississippi that have that same agreement with that same vendor. And when the balloon goes up and all three of them need it at the same time, that vendor may not be ready to deliver. And we found that a lot with the testing supply mission. So contingencies are a big part of the things we have to think about. And then the last point you made, which I think was really good, was thinking about folks' families, right? So if that healthcare worker, is that if that firefighter, if that police officer is vaccinated, but then their family is deathly ill, you think they're going to work? We talk about that with, uh, you know, hurricane and earthquake response, right? So you've got an area where, you know, National Guard's ready to roll, but they also are residents of that area that's impacted and they may not be able to come to work because their house might be destroyed. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about taking care of each other and, and having plans for if Joe, the healthcare worker, gets the vaccine, his children and his wife should also get the vaccine, too, because, um, you know, those individuals are, are going to be a big part of supporting that emergency responder. So 
uh, it's all whole community, whole family, and it takes uh, it takes a village, right? So uh, I, I'd say just stay vigilant. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I, I think if uh, if if our society was much more family based, whether your family size is one because you're living on your own, or if it's five, you know, if you have a couple kids, whatever. Um, like if you if you if we worked on more family based response. And looking at that, the first responder, that family-based man, this is a whole other episode. We could talk about that. But like, it's just more efficient. The data shows communities that face disasters together, that are more united, that do family-based, that, that look at it from that perspective, they recover faster. I want to recover faster. I don't want to deal with this in 12 months. That's my prediction. I held that off in the beginning. I think it's going to be another 12 months before we're going to be like, okay, like this will, will calm down. But that's what it is. Twelve months, and if it happens sooner, thank goodness. If people take this, if people get their vaccine vaccination, thank goodness. Um, but Joe, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. These are big picture stuff that you're talking about. Obviously, thank you so much for everything you've done with COVID. I'm sure you're going to be uh, dealing with a lot during 2021, and uh, we'll get you back on the show sometime to talk about some of those other topics we talked about. If you liked Joe's episode today, or you have questions more about distribution, logistics, how big picture stuff or emergency management, you want to reach out to, to him, you can do it one of two ways. You can follow us on Instagram at Disaster Tough Podcast, or you can send us an email, especially if you want to work with us. You need that contingency plan like Joe's talking about. You can send us an email. That's info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.